All right. Well, hey, just pretty sounding words until the Lord has allowed us to providentially walk in a space where we have experienced his faithfulness and we knew that it was only his hand that could have rescued us. Well, keep singing it, uh, even if you have not yet experienced it, or even if you do not know how you have yet experienced it. Thank you, Aaron, um, for what you're doing and leading today. Uh, in the black church, we would say, let him use you. I saw, I saw that. I saw you over there letting them use you. We appreciated it. Um, so as you heard from Bernard already, we are opening up or commencing a new series entitled Walk This Way. And uh, starting in somewhat of an unusual place, and that is Ephesians chapter 4. Typically, we kick off uh, kind of at the beginning of the book, but why we're starting here will make uh, a lot more sense in just a few moments. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and uh, hopefully God will uh, meet us uh, in our time of uh, opening his word. Amen? Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come this morning. Um, Yet again, you are no strangers to us, and um, you already know how much we need you. You know the desperate ways in which we need you individually. You know the ways in which we need you corporately. And uh, you've already, Lord God, from your throne, anticipated our need. Nothing catches you by surprise. Having uh, spoken in time uh, out of eternity and uh, preserved and captured your word for us, you've given us something that by its own testimony uh, is capable of dividing to the piercing asunder of uh, soul and spirit, bone and marrow, um, thoughts and the intents of the heart so that nothing is hidden from your view. So I ask, Lord God, that by way of your word that you would search each and every one of us, Lord God, and let there be clear exposure, full vulnerability and transparency before you. Let there be nothing that we would hide from the peering eyes and the living nature of your word. We pray, O oh God, that we would experience the promise of your word. Um, You've given it, and uh, it says that it is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that we will be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Lord God, would you equip us for the task ahead, both in our individual lives as well as in our corporate lives? Would you um, teach us something anew, O God, that would fully satisfy our theological curiosities or our ignorances, but at the same time, let it trickle down into our sanctification and translate into a righteous and meaningful way of managing our relationships? Um, Lord God, would you... Also, um, just allow us um, to experience um, what uh, many of the Bible authors refer to as a demonstration of your spirit. Uh, I remember, Lord God, just in the book of Acts as I read and how people would preach just for a few minutes and then your spirit, Lord God, would fall and 3,000 people would come to know you. So, Lord God, whatever the appropriate measure or manifestation of your spirit is today, would you allow it to be experienced in this room Uh, as a clear evidence that you are here among us, so that no heart would be left uh, unsatisfied or unaddressed. Lord God, this is something only you can do. Uh, Go well beyond notes and and preparation, Lord God. Completely move me out of the way and uh, use me at your disposal. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me in them to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Um, If you're wondering why we call this series Walk This Way or why we even come up with series, this one in particular, I want to kind of give you some behind the scenes looks. Uh, So typically when we begin to build out a series, 
uh, we look for a couple of different things. One, what has been the um, kind of the pulse that we're getting from you, the congregation, right? As we meet on a monthly basis with our community group leaders and they share up with us uh, what is happening in the life of the body, uh, as we get phone calls and emails from you or you kind of briefly talk with us in the hallways or in the offices, we are kind of cataloging in our hearts and minds these different things that we believe are impacting the life of the body. Uh, things that we see that then we come to learn. We think about you in that way individually. And then at the same time, we think about the um, overall trajectory um, that the Lord has mapped out for us as a congregation. Where are we in this grand adventure of becoming a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel? How are we doing when it comes to making disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission? And what are some of the speed bumps or pitfalls or curbs that we are having to navigate uh, along those lines? And so, uh, so based on all those things, we've uh, looked at this space in the book of Ephesians and thought this would be an appropriate uh, launching pad um, to speak into some things that are happening in the life of our local body. Um, walk this way. Now, uh, if that title resonates with you and kind of with a little uh, double entendre, it should. I'm going to read some text for you here in just a moment, and then I'm going to explain to you uh, what we mean by walk this way. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, I'm going to read it with some very particular emphasis on places where we are going to go in today's text. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, there's a very high appeal in this passage for believers to do at least two major things that I'll cover in just a moment. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of walking this way. In the latter half, that is chapters 4 through 6 of the book of Ephesians, this phrase of walk this way or walk in a particular kind of way is mentioned over and over again. But it's not necessarily found in the front half of the book. Why? In chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul builds a great theological case, unpacking the great treasures, the richness, and the work, all the things that God has done on behalf of his people. And then in chapter 4, he turns the corner and begins to show us exactly how to unpack all of those great treasures and plug them into regular everyday practice. Now, the cultural uh, backdrop against which the Apostle Paul writes this letter is not one that uh, bears out any theological issues or problems, but we do know that on one of Paul's missionary journeys, he goes into uh, Ephesus and makes his first stop, as always is his tradition, at a uh, synagogue where he finds his Jewish brethren, and he begins to share with them the way. He begins to talk to them about how it is Jesus Christ who fully satisfies what it is that you think you know about the law and godliness. And then he also doubles around and he goes and he talks to those who are outside of the Jewish family and begins to share with them uh, the deep truths and the underpinnings of the gospel truth and how that also calls them into a unique relationship with God. 
And as you can imagine, calling two distinct groups of people from their respective spaces into not only community with communion with God, but also into community with each other is going to have some real implications. And this is where Paul begins to talk about what it means to walk this thing out. In 1986, executives from Def Jam Records placed a call to Steven Tyler, who was the head or the leader of the group Aerosmith. Thank you, Brother Marcus. Uh, This message will feature homework. If you're not familiar with the song Walk This Way by Ron DMC covering Aerosmith, you need to go look it up on YouTube after service because there are some images in there that are very important to your fullest appreciation of today's message. There are. I, I promise you. So anyway, uh, Def Jam executives call um, Stephen Tyler and begin to talk to him about doing this song in collaboration with a rap group, Run DMC. Stephen Tyler's response is, what is rap? Yeah, 1986, there was a very select and distinct group of people who knew what rap music was. It was pretty ubiquitous to us. We thought it was all over the world, but it really wasn't in 1986. And there were people within this rock community who had no idea what rap was, and there's people in this rap community who knew what rock was, but it knew it wasn't theirs. And so this idea of doing this collaborative measure together of having a, uh, an iconic rap group and this, rap, this rock group who, quite honestly, their career was on the downturn. They were going through rehab and a bunch of other stuff. But to get them to do this song together was considered a good idea by record executives, but they didn't know how grand and how great it would be once the final project came together. Uh, both uh, J- Daryl and Joe, members of and, uh, Jam SJ, they were kind of cold on the idea uh, uh, of it, but they were open to it. We'll, we'll trust the powers that be on this project. And there was a similar sentiment on the side of Aerosmith. But anyway, they finally come together and they produce this song that we all know that is entitled Walk This Way. But here's why you got to do your homework. When you watch the video, when you watch the video, if you remember, it starts off with... Ron DMC on their side of the wall, doing their thing. Jam Master Day, doing his thing. Steven Tyler and Aerosmith, they're on their side of the wall, doing their thing. And the two groups are constantly disturbing one another. And then Steven Tyler, in a fit of anger, goes and I think he either takes his microphone stand or something, and he tears down the wall between the, in the studio. Ron DMC, they come busting through, and then they perform together. This song that gets every one of us like, yeah, I mean, some of y'all right now are like wanting to look it up and like completely skip the message. And it was incredible that they were able to, to create this finished work, this thing called Walk This Way. And it was iconic, not because rap and, and, and rock had gotten together, but because we in the music community never knew that these two worlds could come together and not just come together and tolerate each other, not just in the same building with a wall that divides and hoping that they keep their respective volumes down, but they came together in this crazy way, producing one album that topped the charts in multiple countries. It was crazy. Now, the reason that we want to talk about what it means to walk this way is because when I read Paul's words here, he begins with these words, I therefore. And after the therefore, he appeals to the Ephesian audience as a prisoner. He says, I therefore ask you to walk worthy of the calling. What is the calling? The calling is this, this, this premise that was given to us in chapters 1 through 3, where in Christ there has now been a tearing down of a wall. 
that existed between two communities that were diametrically opposed to one another culturally, and that was the Jewish community and the Gentile community. But even prior to that, there was another wall that existed between God and us. And in Christ, all the walls have been torn down. And now God's plan to unify all things in Christ is being appropriated. Appropriated at the cross, punctuated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but now called to be practiced amongst those who call themselves Christians. And therefore, we now are being called to do what? Walk this way. And so what is the way in which we are called to walk? We're called to walk out the practical implications of what it means for God having torn down the wall between these two groups that otherwise would never play with one another, would never do life harmoniously with one another. We might see one another and tolerate one another, but never do life in a meaningful way that is unified. Understand this. Every human heart craves harmony and unity but we don't necessarily know how to go about getting it without supernatural help. We all crave harmony. And some of the ways that we craft our own means of harmony is just by building walls that allow people in our like communities to coexist. And the moment that we find out that one of those relationships is no longer effectively coexisting, that person gets expelled or excluded. It happens in subdivisions, it happens in fraternities, it happens in schoolyards, on playgrounds. It happens every, in every space of life. It happens amongst coworkers. All of a sudden, John is not invited to happy hour anymore. All of a sudden, Lucy is only allowed to, to come to, you know, she can come to lunch with us, but she can't go to dinner. Right? But, 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 but let, me get, let, me, let me come home for a second. Here we are worshiping on this side of the wall. We got our style. We've got our tempo. We, got our, we, got, we have all the elements that we've grown to love and enjoy that very much makes us distinctly who we are. And at the same time, there's a group of people over there worshiping on the other side of the wall with their own distinct loves and joys and rhythms and volumes. And if we're not careful, we will allow this barrier to become a burden to a more beautiful expression of what God wants to do in the body of Christ. So today I'm going to be aiming at a lot of different topics, but the overall life trajectory for us, I believe that the Lord is definitely moving us into this larger gospel partnership, and there are some walls that need to be torn down. And I believe that in our own lives, if you're new today and you're like, what are you talking about gospel partnership? I believe that in every one of our lives, there is some kind of relationship that is in disrepair. And it is typically because our pursuit of harmony and peaceable existence has been crafted after our own devices or in a way that we think will work and it's not the way God would have it to work. And so what do we do about that? Well, I believe first and foremost that the book of Ephesians shows us this, that there is a unity that lives within the Trinity that should be reflected in the local body. It's a tongue twister intentionally, but let's do it again. There is a unity that lives within the Trinity that the Lord expects to be reflected in the local body. Now, what's interesting about the unity that exists within the Trinity that God expects to be reflected in the body is look at the great work of God in Christ on the cross. It is the Father who looks down at humanity and sees that we have a problem, but refuses to stay up there looking down. He comes by sending his own son to address the issue. Completely different, distinct roles. 
but rowing and moving toward the same mission. And then after the Son dies on the cross in our place, absorbing or shielding us from the wrath of the Father, but showing us at the same time the love of the Father, he then, for all who would place faith in him, gives us the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, who is also completely distinct and different from the Father and the Son, but yet operating in full harmony with the Trinity to point us all in the same direction. It is, the father who is it is the Father who is constantly pointing attention to the Son, who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But then it is the Son who is constantly calling us up to be worshipers of the Father in spirit and in truth. But then it is the Spirit who comes, convicts us of our sin, calls us to a place of repentance, and it lives inside of us and says, now I am going to bear witness of the Son. So there's absolutely no competition within the body or competition within the Trinity, even though they have the same level of authority, but yet they seem to learn how to, or not learn, they have perfected this kind of unity. And then says, okay, how can we now have that appropriated in this thing we call the body? And so that's where I believe Paul is trying to help us, and I hope to help us as well see just a couple of principles from this. The title of today's message is Reconcilable Differences. Reconcilable Differences. Uh, if you thought Aerosmith and Ron DMC were on opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, there are relationships uh, in the world that are far more divided than that. And the ultimate relationship that was far more divided than that was the one between us and God, but we'll get there later. Um, there are two major premises that uh, the Apostle Paul builds his argument on today, and they are one is obviously laying on the surface of the text, and the other one is laying somewhat underneath, but I think you'll see them both when I say them. When it comes to practicing unity in the body that is uh, uh, depicted first and foremost in the Trinity, Paul says that we need to walk in a way that is worthy. I believe that there is a call for walking in worthiness, number one, and then there is a second call to walking in oneness, number two walking in worthiness, and walking in oneness. These are the two uh, big ideas that I'll be building on uh, for the remainder of our conversation today. Now, when we think about walking in worthiness, exactly what does this require? I believe the walking in worthiness demands, first and foremost, that we work on our mindset before we start worrying about the minutia. Working on our mindsets before we begin worrying about minutia. As I think about kind of this bigger picture of a, of a prospect of a merger with, with, with First Baptist, I think about how it is so easy and so tempting to get caught up in the minutia. Oh, how, what color are we going to use? Will we be forced to wear robes? Is there going to be a choir every Sunday? What knob are we going to... What, what, how, how, will the volume be a 6 or a 10? Right, right, right. We have all these ways of getting caught up in minutia. Will we have programs? What, how fast, what technology will we use to, 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 to run the online piece? What kind of music is it going to be? How many services? How, what are we going to do with Sunday school? What will we call community groups, right? There is this, there is this, I, there's this thing where we can get caught up in the minutia. But even if you're not on board or, or, or you don't even know what I'm talking about with this whole uh, merger and partnership, even in your own lives, when you have a relationship that is at disrepair, the human tendency is to go into the details before we deal with the mindset that should be driving reaching a place of reconciliation. Wherever there is a broken and friction-filled relationship, I believe that the Bible calls us to, first and foremost, 
check our mindsets before we get involved in the minutia. Well, what does the mindset check look like? Well, Paul outlines it for here right, right here in the passage. He says, walk, word, walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And here are the five premises of this worthy mindset. Walk with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The first one is what? All right, now, people in the book, I like it. So we talk about humility. What is humility? I mean, that's not a hard word. That shows up on no one's quiz or test. I think we all have a basic working definition of humility. But what is a biblical idea of humility? I believe that humility, biblically defined, is fighting the natural tendency to put me first. Humility is fighting the natural tendency to put me first. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what time you woke up. I woke up this morning at about 5.30, and guess who I thought about first? Me. Maybe you got up before me. Maybe it's something in the air. I'm, you got up at 4.45, or you got up at 2.25. Maybe you worked third shift, and you've been awake all night, haven't been asleep. When you got up work, first person you thought about was me. <laughs> Not me, you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. We have a default setting to think about me. And humility is one of the, the calls of God to, to, to work out the fruit of the Spirit because it is not a natural tendency to think about others, so to put others first. And so we're called in relationships that need unity and reconciliation to, first of all, fight the natural tendency to put me first. Now, we know that putting me first is part and parcel of the fall because it's exactly the picture that is depicted for us in scriptures when it talks about this moment where Satan goes before the throne of God and begins to exalt himself over God himself, even though he already had a great job. And he was like, no, I want me first. This isn't enough. But have you noticed that when we look at the Trinity, there is obviously something going on there where the Father is the first person of the Godhead, Jesus is the second, and and the Holy Spirit is the third. But have you noticed that we never think of them as less than? We're just all wonderfully awed by how they are able to do what they do without competition or confusion. Why? Because the kind of unity and harmony that we all desire lives within this Trinity. And therefore, and, and the Trinity is living within us. Via the agency of the, of the Holy Spirit. And so we are called to participate in that kind of unity. Well, what is one of the first and foremost expressions of the cross that we are called to adopt here? That of humility. Fighting the natural tendency of putting me first. It's so awesome that the Holy Spirit never puts himself first, even though he is deserving of just as much glory as anyone else. The son never sought to put himself first. He said, I didn't come to, I came to seek and save the Lord. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. The father certainly could have put himself as only. He didn't have to do any of this, but then he chose to to put humanity uh, in a unique position to experience him. What does he have to gain? And so we are called to practice humility as one of the first aspects of the mindset. Are you in the book? What's the second one? Gentleness. Thank you, Marcus. Somebody else over here said it too. You'll have to share the first prize on that. What is gentleness? Gentleness is handling with care things that are hard to handle overall or that are hard to care about. I don't know if you've ever been a patient in a hospital or if you've ever peeped through the window or even just walked the halls. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit biased on this because I'm married to a nurse or a nurse practitioner, and, but I remember as a little boy, even before I got married, I remember watching nurses do what they do, and I was amazed because I couldn't understand how they could move with such gentleness 
toward, toward people who sometimes were incredibly cantankerous. I don't want to take that. I mean, old people who would hide their medicine under their tongue and spit it out when the nurse left, and she'd come back and still smile, right? Or people who may have been laying in a bed with, with, with cuts and bruises and all kinds of issues that are their fault, things that they did, a lifestyle that they live, but the nurse with no judgment comes in and moves with gentleness. Uh, some of the, the grossest and the ugliest of messes that I've ever seen, but yet nurses come in and just work through it and with it with gentleness. That is what I believe that the Bible is calling us through, is to handling with care things that are hard to handle. Things that other people might be prepared to give up on. Relationships that are messy and nasty and that are broken, and it's very much the other person's fault. Like we are in this dubious situation because of you, person on the other side, but yet the, the appeal of Scripture is to move with gentleness. Now, we see Jesus typifying this after a long journey and day of preaching. He gets on a boat, goes across the Gadarean Sea, gets out of the boat, hops out right next to a cemetery, sees a man who is demon-possessed, who is cutting himself in the tombs, hanging out in a cemetery next to pigs. This is quadruple problematic for a great high-practicing Jewish person. Never supposed to be near a cadaver. Did you know that? Never supposed to be near a cadaver. So here's a man, here's a Jew hanging out in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a cemetery. Not supposed to ever touch bodily fluid, but here's a man that is actively cutting himself with, with stones. Definitely not supposed to be hanging out and keeping community with people that are Gentiles, but here he is, has gotten in a boat and gone on his way to do it, and in the backdrop, there's obviously a near pack of pigs. Did you see that in Jesus? But he goes there, and you know what the first order of business is? Hi, what is your name? They call me Legion. I mean, Jesus is out here passing out name tags in some of the nastiest situations ever. He's working the, he's working the, 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 the desk up there. What do you call it? What are we passing out the cups? The welcome center. And then he goes in and he heals the man. He heals the man, gets back on the boat, you know, tells him, go down there and tell your friends about the work we just did in your life. You don't have to follow me. I'm not looking for a fan club. I'm looking for people to go make disciples. Jesus gets back on the boat, uh, kills the pigs and, the, you know, two birds and one stone. You know what I mean? You can know he don't like bacon. And then he gets on the boat and he leaves. But Jesus was able to go into a really nasty situation, and he moved with gentleness. The Bible tells us that other people in town were not able to handle this man. He had been banished to hang out in the cemetery. Nobody else wanted to deal with him. He wasn't at his grandma's house living in the basement because his parents got tired of him. He was hanging out in the cemetery. He, the, the society was done with him. Jesus, with gentleness, goes into the stickiest of situations he didn't ask any questions. My dear friend, how did you become demon-possessed? Did you play with Ouija boards? Have you been, did you go to the county fair and get your palm read? He didn't do any of that. He just walked in and just moved with gentleness toward him. And therefore, we are called to move with gentleness too. What's the third one? Patience, y'all, in the book. I love it. Patience. Being slow to wrath is not a, slack, a lack of integrity. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Excuse me, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to or reach repentance. You see, the backstory is that many people say, well, wait a minute. The whole world seems to be just kind of going to hell in a handbasket. God's promises are not true, and he's also weak. Have you ever felt that when you were being patient with someone? When you were being really patient, have you ever felt that pull that, oh, no, they're taking me for granted? I, I, I can't show up weak. I got to let them know, right? You ever felt that pull? That pull ain't of God. Because God, too, has felt that. T- I don't know if he feels that tension, but humanity has aimed at him in that way by saying, by saying that if God was really true, he would have come in and done something about this. But they missed the bigger picture. God is slow to wrath. That does not mean he lacks integrity. He's showing this mercy and this forbearance because he is not just waiting on us, but he's also working on us to get our acts together. Notice that God does not just sit in heaven barking out commands, telling people to get themselves together like some kind of drill sergeant. Have you noticed that he didn't sit in heaven, but he sent his son, and even after the son's work is complete, he then turns and sends his spirit and dwells within us in an even more intimate way? The Holy Spirit, for anybody in here who is saved, is actively listening to the naughtiest of thoughts. It's not just the slip of the tongue, it's the full gearing of the mind. He hears it. He's in there hanging out. And it's not like the Holy Spirit is screaming back to heaven, this isn't what I signed up for. Do you see what this guy's thinking about? How am I supposed to to conform this to the image of Christ? This guy's nasty, man. Like the Holy Spirit isn't doing any of that. He fully knows what he is doing in all of our lives. But why is he there? Bringing about reconciliation in the lives of of things that seem to be totally irreconcilable. Showing mercy. So God isn't just waiting on us to get our acts together from a distance. He is working with us. Jesus defined the ministry of the Holy Spirit as one who would come to convict the world of sin, but not just to have us hitting our head against the wall going, woe is me, I'm a bad person. The Bible says that that, that godly sorrow leads to, thank you, Marcus, we got a couple of Bible readers in here. Scary you too, I'll give you points for that. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. So God isn't just trying to, through consequences, make people feel bad about themselves. Godly sorrow should lead to repentance. And that's what he's doing. He's working on us through his spirit. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. Help me. It's in the book. Eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit. Now, what's interesting about the eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit is that it says maintain. Well, wait a minute, spirit. I thought you was bringing the unity. Why I need to maintain it? Well, how many of you own a car? Maybe you bought it brand new or not new, but it's new to you. Fully holding together, perfectly maintained. Forgive me for not having a a handkerchief. That would be more professional. (laughs) Here you have the the call to maintain the unity of the spirit. Why? Well, even though this thing, think about your car. Even though it is beautifully held together by all of the engineering and all of the science and all of the metal and all of the screws and all that stuff, it's being beautifully held together. But you and I still have to handle maintenance. Because where the rubber meets the road, those things wear out. There, there are natural units within the engine and within, the, uh, within the, the, the wheels and other places that are going through constant velocity, and they, ha- they are subject to friction, and therefore they have to be refreshed. The same is true of our relationships. While there is a unique and supernatural work of bringing together a body in unity, the Lord says we just can't set it and forget it. 
right? So, so once you say yes at the altar, marriage is not just going to be beautifully and wonderfully and forever unified. There is maintenance because where the rubber meets the road, things get worn out. When, when the two churches come together, we won't just be able to go, oh, we finally got that done. We got, a, we got a name on the sign that we agree with, and we got some documents signed. Oh, that's over with. No, unity demands maintenance. It is a part of our sanctification and is part of our participation in having the unity of the Trinity reflected in the local body. There are going to be, there is going to be friction, There is going to be areas that rub against one another. And the Lord says, before you start focusing on the minutia, I want you to elevate your mindset. Can you imagine going to get your vehicle repaired and the technician says, well, hey, you need new brakes. And you say to yourself, well, I'm just going to throw the car away. Is that not ridiculous? Well, how much more ridiculous is it when you say, that's going to be too much friction to join with that other church. I'm going to get me a new church. Well, how much more is that to, to do that in your relationships or on your jobs or with various people? Every time there's friction, you decide, i just give me a new one. And so, on a much lighter note, Um, we, um, I say this, that these facets, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and unity, these are cultivated by the Father, they are caused by the Spirit, but they are only capable because of our connection with the Son. John depicts this more beautifully for us. Remember, these, are, these things are akin to the fruit of the Spirit, but what does this fruit in a believer's life come from? Here's where. Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine... And my father is a vine dresser. He's the farmer. He's the one who is cultivating this. Now listen carefully at how he cultivates. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So the father is actively cultivating by taking away those branches that are a distraction and then clipping and preparing and pruning those branches that are going to produce. Now, if you've ever been, anybody been to a vineyard? Yeah, yeah. So when you talk about trellising or pruning, what really is happening, the, the actual to be really explicit with the original language, if you enjoy that kind of thing. He's talking about lifting up branches that that are not producing because they're laying on the ground and are not in an ideal position to receive everything that they need from the vine. And so that's why in a vineyard you see the trellis because when you raise up these branches off the ground, it allows what what is in the, the main branch to flow effectively, or in the main vine to flow to the branches. That's why you see these things at a vineyard held up. And this is the, the, the beautiful imagery that you're being uh, 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 brought into, that the Lord is the vine dresser walking through this vineyard and going, okay, who's not producing? Let me, let me raise that up. Let me, let me recultivate. Let me situate it. Let me, let me do some things that will produce optimal production in their lives. And sometimes it's pruning. Sometimes it's lifting. And so it says, the Father's the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, or he takes up in some of your versions, and that it may bear more fruit, prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Here's that connection that's contingent on all of our production. And I in you... As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say this. 
If you fail to operate in humility, generosity, patience, forbearance, and unity, you're not going to lose your salvation, but I can assure you, you're not using your salvation in a way that is worthy of your call. You're not experiencing the, the full beauty of it. You're not going to lose it. I don't, the, the gifts of God are without repentance. Man, if you're, if you're just a rowdy person and you're just, you're just proud and humble, now you do need to do a fruit check and ask if you even connected to the vine. But, but, but I don't think the Lord is just ripping folks' salvation away. You're not going to lose it if you're not this kind of person, but you're not using it in a way that's worthy. You're not experiencing the, just the full glory of what it means to be one of God's. You're not going to experience the, the blessing of being a broker of peace and harmony. And you also want to experience it in your own life. And you'll become one of those people who is always frustrated with God because it doesn't seem that he is following through on his promises to you. Well, that's because you ain't following through on his commandments to you. You won't lose your salvation, but you definitely won't be using it full tilt. All right, we got a couple of minutes left. This is, I got one more point to make, <laughs> one more half of whatever passage. Uh, let's look at verses four through six. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Seven times. Seven different ones that are mentioned. You know, these numbers are important in the Bible. But what's, what's going on here, Paul? Well, first of all, this call to walk in oneness, I believe, is a marker to this, that we should work in a way to see our differences as a reflection of God's genius. The oneness. We should work in a way to see, we should be working to see our differences as a reflection of God's genius. In other words, uh, in, in the ne very next message in next week, you're going to see how God gives this diversity of gifts to the body where these differences are a part of God's divine genius. But we fail to fully see and experience the genius of God when we're only focused on the differences themselves and not how they are intended to differentiate the way that we can glorify God as opposed to put us at odds with one another. There are distinct differences in the body. We will always find things that are working against natural oneness. When we come into a gathering, uh, it is easy, especially when you don't know anybody, to gather on the basis of the most obvious, to gather on the basis of shared gender, shared skin color, uh, shared age, shared generation, shared occupation. It's so easy to just naturally drift into little, little clusters. But the, but the call for unity in the body is so much higher than that. And that's exactly what I believe we're seeing in these seven appeals of oneness. The, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all and, all, and over all. You see, when we, when, we, when, we, when we find ourselves at places where unity is tough, scale up in your view. Scale up. How did we get here? What do we share in common? Man, one body. Let's, let's lay it against the first century backdrop real quick. So here it is. The apostle Paul on his missionary journey has gone in, shared the truths of Jesus to a, to a Jewish audience. They were like, yep. I see it now. I see how all the Ten Commandments found their fulfillment in Christ. That message makes so much sense. Dear God, save me. I'm a saved Jew. I'm a Gentile person. Know nothing about the Ten Commandments. But the Apostle Paul goes in and begin to share about the, 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 the heart's appeal of all humanity and how we're desperately looking for something to bring about purpose and hope. And then they find hope in Christ. But guess what? One group got saved at the synagogue and one got saved at the temple of Diana. But now there is one body, and these folks are getting ready to meet in one building. And so this is why he makes the appeal that, hey, y'all, there's just one body. I don't care what door you came into Christ with, we're all just part of one body. 
We're just one body. And we have to constantly scale up to see that. Two churches, different addresses. We're not in competition. We're part of one body. Uh, one of the places where I grow to appreciate this is when I go to a major sporting event and I go into an arena, you know, 50,000 people are in there and it's crazy and we're all just kind of looking center stage or whatever and doing our thing. And when it's over, I'm always amazed when it's over, whether you coming from the $1,000 seats, the $2,000 seats, whether you coming out the suites or whether you coming out the $10 seats or whether you snuck in with a fake ticket from a guy selling it with water and a shirt in the parking lot. We all have the same hope. We're just trying to get home. When that game is over, people coming out of the top, they're coming out the bottom, they're coming out of, I mean, the riches of the suites. But we all coming through different doors, but we all have the same hope. I hope I didn't miss Marta. I hope my car didn't get busted into, and I hope we can get home tonight. And I believe that, that, that life, I believe our salvation is the same thing. There are people that are coming into their hope because, man, their, 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 their current life and situation is fraught with unimaginable, indescribable, embarrassing difficulty that they couldn't explain to anyone else. But Jesus, I hope when I come through this door and place my faith in you, you can lead me somewhere. And he will. And so regardless of which door you came through, whether you came through the drug door, whether you came through the hopeless broke door, whether you came through the uh, something going on in your body door, whether you came through the racist door, whether you came through the helpless door, whether you came through the abuse door, no matter what door you came in, God is funneling all of us into the same hope. And it is on that premise that we are called to walk in oneness. So when we're, now have you ever noticed that when people are going into the arena, we're elbowing and tussling and trying to get to our seat to see the show? But you ever notice how much more gracious we are when we're coming out? Oh, he's just trying to get to his car. He ain't trying to take nothing from me. We're just trying to go. We're all trying to get to the same place. And I believe that we can adopt that mindset of oneness. There's one hope. There's one spirit. The same spirit that saved the Gentiles is the one that saved the, the Jews. The same spirit that, that enables, uh, that gets over here and uses Aaron. Oh, when you do your thing, you come on. Is the same spirit. Is the same spirit that uses Sheila when she over there propped up on, that, on the other piano. It's the same spirit. Same spirit that, that works in Tiffany when she's leading the choir over here or leading James when he's doing his thing. It's the same spirit that leads Keith. You understand what I'm saying? Same spirit that'll, that hopefully is, 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 is helping me preach. It's the same spirit that help, is helping Ryan preach. You understand what's happening here? It's the same spirit. And so if it's the same spirit and it's one hope and it's one Lord and one faith, it just means that whenever I see division, I need to scale up because I'm looking too low. I'm thinking too low. I need to scale up. Lord, help me to see where you're drawing us all to. One of the most beautiful depictions of this is in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. It says, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll, talking to Jesus sitting on the throne. To open the seals, you were slain by your blood, and you ransomed your people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. What a beautiful scene before the throne. And guess who in there? You and me. This is a prophetic view. Me and you in there somewhere. And you have made them a kingdom of priests and to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the sound of the throne and living creatures and the elders and the voice of the angels numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain 
receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. This is the beautiful montage, the beautiful, diverse, the beautiful panorama of worship that God is calling every single one of us to. This is the unified view that we're all around the throne of God worshiping the Lord. But he says, guess what? This picture isn't just to go in the scrapbook of Christianity to be only peeled back doing a couple of occasional messages. I want this kind of beautiful unity to somehow be practiced now. Can people of every tribe and nation turn their focus toward the throne so that what tribe and nation they're from becomes a beautiful expression of God's genius rather than an issue or reason for us to wonder how you got in? Or why do we have to do it that way? You've heard the phrase that you can be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. I do believe that the Bible calls us to be so kingdom minded that we're constantly of earthly good. Jesus put it this way. Um, Jesus said uh, um, in the, the most basic prayer that he taught all of us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the prayer that every believer is called to pray, right? That, that we would somehow be a conduit through which kingdom's beauty will become earth's reality. Why would I pray that if I didn't want to participate? Who is he going to do that through? He's going to do it through us. So I just want to say this very, um, very simply, that when unity breaks down, that means that we need to scale our view up. Um, it's hard to be a person who brokers and pursues unity in those relationships when I don't have unity and harmony and reconciliation in my most basic relationship. I hope at the beginning of the message you remember this. I said that from chapters 1 through 3 to what the Apostle Paul did, he says that this, this, this call to walk worthy is based on the premise that Jesus has done this great work in chapter 3, which is he tore down the middle wall of partition. Anything that could divide us, he tore it down. He didn't massage it. He didn't drill a peephole so that we could spy on each other. It says he tore it down in Christ. He didn't want the wall to exist anymore. He didn't want just the wall to exist courteously with a door. He tore it down in Christ. And so, but let me say this. You could have the most wretched relationship of all time with someone sitting on your left or right, or someone who would never set foot in a church, but they do sit at your dinner table, or perhaps someone that you share a cubicle with or you share a company with. You could have a really busted and broken relationship with somebody in your life. And trust me, that relationship is in no way, is in no way in as much disrepair as was ours with God himself. In other words, God says, listen, if I can reconcile you and me, the holy and the unholy, if I can reconcile a person who was running from me, certainly I can work on that, whatever your that is. If, if, he says, listen, if, if I can take a person who you would be ashamed to let anyone in the room hear what you do say and might say about God, but yet I choose to reside in you. If I can reconcile that relationship, how much more can I reconcile one with somebody who talks behind your back or who've spoken in a gossipful way and you can't believe that they would ever say that about you? Can you think about the disparaging things that we have said, maybe not to and about God, but that would be a departure from holiness, yet he hears every word. And God says, I'm prepared to reconcile you. And so God tears down 
these walls that exist between us and him. And then says, now the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, which is in my Holy Spirit, is my Holy Spirit. I place in you and I'm going to ask you to walk worthy of the kind of reconciliation that I brokered on your behalf. Go do that in the lives of others. Point people to me if they haven't gotten their vertical relationship right. And let you begin to appropriate in your horizontal relationships how to get others to walk in unity. There are false and fake unities, but the first kind of unity that must take place is between us and the holy God. I want to pray for us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I, um, I make an appeal to you on behalf of all those in the audience, regardless of what level of relationship they have with you. For the person that does not know you, who is just simply sitting here hearing words, but knowing that mm, somehow I need that level of harmony, peace, and reconciliation. I, I don't want to be at disrepair. I don't want to be at distance with God. Lord God, as a person that recognizes there is a great distance, a difference, and a disagreement between you and them, and they're saying, what do I do? And you're simply saying, trust the work that I've done to tear down the wall. I pray, oh God, that as you are making that clear to the person that is here, that their heart would be softened to the truth of the gospel, and they would repent. They would turn from themselves, turn toward you, and beg you to come and save them. Lord God, Lord God, help them not to be thrown off by the minutia of salvation. They may be saying to themselves, I don't know all of the right religious words. I don't even know the, the, the proper prayers. But Lord God, meet them in the parking lot as they bang their head on the steering wheel and just say, Lord, help me. Lord God, would you meet them in their cry? Meet them, oh God, because their heart is towards you, even though they don't get the minutia. Hmm. Lord God, for the person that does know you, but relationships are broken all over the place and they seem to be irreparably broken. Would you encourage that heart to know that there is no degree of brokenness that is irreconcilable, that you can't fix and that you can't reconcile? Lord God, would you, would you appeal to that heart to bring that relationship before you? And in them bringing it to you, Lord God, would you also empower them to go into that relationship and take with them all the humility and the gentleness and the pursuit and the eagerness of unity that's required? Lord God, would you, would you meet us in this way? We earnestly pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.